we started talking about the Old Testament. Um, tonight we'll get into uh, does it apply, and then we'll talk specifically for a little bit about the Ten Commandments. Um, or actually flip those. We'll talk specifically about the Ten Commandments and then sort of use that as an illustration or as an example. But uh, last week we sort of introduced kind of the concept of the Old Law and the New Law, the Old Testament, um, you know, how it's broken up, the different reasons, the different parts of it exist. You know, talked a little bit about uh, what it meant to maybe them in the uh, Old Testament context and then talked a little bit about uh, what does it mean to us now. You know, we started asking, uh, we looked at Galatians 3.24 where it calls it a, different translations called it a tutor or a guide, a guardian or a schoolmaster. Uh, just presents this idea of helpful, you know, definitely helpful, useful, but also not complete. Um, not complete, imperfect, we might even say. Um, so tonight, we'll probably answer most of these other remaining three. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments, because I, what we'll do is we'll kind of talk about the Ten Commandments specifically as sort of an example of the old law. And I think in our discussion about the Ten Commandments, it will hopefully reveal a little bit of how to view the old law as a whole, if that makes sense. Um, so, my, my first question, I think I ended this last week, I can't remember if I said this or not, um, I think it was a question I left y'all with, was do we still obey the Ten Commandments? And I warned y'all that was a trick question, so I'm curious if anyone thought about it or has decided anything. Do we still obey the Ten Commandments? I'm saying all but one. Okay. It's a pretty solid answer. Why would you say that? You said all but one. Why would you say all but one? Well, all the rest of them actually pertain to uh, godliness. True. O obey your father, you know, and uh, love the Lord with all your heart. They pertain to godliness. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the seventh day to keep you holy, we don't, we don't do that. We make up on for ourselves. We True. True. Although you can keep discussion still, about calendars and stuff. We still keep the Sabbath day holy. True. I mean, if you count from Monday. Do every day. Okay. Just a holy day okay. to other. Well, hey, Stephen Treese are here. Um, so that's kind of where I was going. That's actually that's probably the closest that I bet we would get. Like I said, I warned y'all it was kind of a trick question. But uh, so, yes, we do obey them, but not for the reason you would think. So, and this is kind of what Claudette was getting to, I think. Um, nine of the ten original Ten Commandments are actually referenced again in the New Testament. So we do still keep them, but not necessarily because they're in Exodus 20 or because they're the Ten Commandments. We keep them because they happen to also be things he told us in the New Law, in the New Testament. Um, and as Claude pointed out, all of them also fit into every other idea of holiness that is given in the New Testament. Right? Because we would say that there is kind of... Um, I don't want to say different standards, but maybe uh, different practices. Different, like if the standard is still holiness, he gives us different ways to sort of go about that in the new law than under the old law. Um, so the the short answer to the kind of the trick question was yes, we do obey the Ten Commandments. They're all, as he pointed out, because nine of them, all except for honoring the Sabbath day, are mentioned again in the New Testament. Um, like not to worship any other gods. And I'll just run down them here. Um, not to worship any other gods, you know, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Uh, not to have idols, which is kind of the same thing. Uh, as mentioned again in 1 John 5. Not, using, not to misuse the name of the Lord, 1 Timothy 6. 
honoring your father and mother, Ephesians 6, uh, not to murder, Romans 13, 1 Peter 4, that one had a couple different places, uh, not to commit adultery, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, not to steal, Ephesians 4, 28, uh, not to give false testimony, um, this was in multiple places, but one of them was Revelation 21, 8, and then do not covet or envy, which is in Colossians 3, 5. So, and this was kind of uh, what we ended up talking about last Sunday, really. Um, what about the Sabbath? So why, why wouldn't we, why would there be re-emphasis on the other nine, but maybe not the Sabbath? Or why would we say that's treated differently? Any thoughts? Well, let's turn to Hebrews 4 then. I got a head start. But let's take a look at Hebrews 4. And I had originally, it, 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 this is kind of talked about all through Hebrews 4. Of really verses 1 through 11, but if someone could read from verse 4 through verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 4, from verse 4 down to verse 10, and we'll kind of talk about that for a little bit. Okay, so who wants to explain what Brett just read? Probably not, right? That's a little confusing. It's a little weird. So I kind of, uh, using this and then, <clears throat> if you wanted to write it down, uh, using this along with Colossians 2.16 and, of course, Jesus' words in Mark 2.27, um, I kind of understood a way of thinking about it that I, I think I can, hopefully a path I can lead us down. Um, what is the Sabbath on like a most basic level? What, what, what does the Sabbath mean? It's a day of rest. Day of rest, right? Okay, a rest from presumably working, right? Well, I, I what I at least kind of understand if you read this section and also kind of go back and read, because uh, he, the Hebrews writer references several specific passages of the Old Testament. So if you read this and you read those Old Testament passages that he's talking about and the stories they're referencing, um, it's this idea that the Sabbath is rest from working. One of the biggest differences between really the old law and the new law is that we can no longer work our way to salvation. Um, and that is 
a statement that I think can have a lot of theological implications, so I'm trying not to go down a ton of rabbit holes, but just really simply, under the old law, along with their just normal working work to till the fields or provide for themselves, the people were expected to regularly perform sacrifices, to regularly cleanse themselves, perform certain ritual washings, and they would do a lot of thi- like they did a lot of work, all of which were was necessary through the priestly law, the priestly code, to cleanse themselves from their sin. Do we need to still cleanse ourselves from sin? Certainly not the way they did, right? Not regularly. If we did it all, we would say we do through baptism. Right? I think it's First Peter... I want to say chapter 2, but, you know, baptism, not the the washing of dirt from your body, but the cleansing of sin, the remission of sin. Um, So we now sort of enter into his rest through baptism. Baptism is the work that we have to do, if you can call it that, which I, I, again, I understand that this terminology and talking about things like this goes down a whole can of worms, that hopefully at least kind of addressed when we talked about baptism, we talked about faith and works earlier this year. And I'm not trying to like make out-of-context theological statements, but in the same way that the Jews or the Israelites had to work their way to salvation, and there was literally things they had to do, there was work they had to do to earn at least a temporary cleansing, we don't do that. We don't do those same things they did. If there was anything that we would say that we do have to do to be cleansed from our sins, we would say baptism. But even then, for me to call that a work, it would say, it would have to say, it, it, that would imply that I do something. But who does the work in baptism? Really? It's God, right? And we can look at all sorts of scriptures that talk about that. God adds you to the church. God cleanses you of sin. I mean, who can forgive sin but God? It's also another, another thing Jesus said. Um, who but God can forgive sin? So, we, call, we could call it like doing something, but really, e- even in the thing that I would say that I should do or have to do, I'm not even the one really working. It's God working in baptism who cleanses my sin. So, <clears throat> in this spiritual context of work and of rest, of you know working for six days and then having the Sabbath... The way the Hebrews writer kind of talks about it, I think, best kind of explains that. Um, and, he, and he goes on to say, after verse 10, in verse 10 he says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So he says, you don't really need to keep a separate day for resting because once you've been cleansed of sin, once you've kind of joined that new covenant, once you've become a Christian, however we want to call it, you no longer need to work, thus you've entered into his rest. Does that kind of make sense? So if the Sabbath is a rest from working, well, we no longer work in order to achieve our salvation. There, there are things we do that are part of Christian living. There are commands we're obeyed, commanded to follow, of course. But we also now understand no amount of sacrifice, no amount of ritual washing can, can cleanse ourselves of sin. Jesus has already cleansed us of sin. And that did away with the Sabbath. Yes, exactly. And they would say that, you know. Um, and he even says, you know, let everyone strive. This is the part I was going to read in verse 11 from Hebrews 4. 
let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, and of course, he goes on to talk about the Word of God and starts to transition into another topic, but uh, some other lines that we would recognize in chapter 4 for sure. Um, but does that kind of make sense when we talk about spiritual rest, working to obtain our spirituality, resting from works? Maybe. Does it make as much sense as it's probably going to make today? <laughs> At least from this one, one passage we've read. Um, any other questions about Hebrews 4? Because um, like I said, I, th- I think if you read all of Hebrews 4... Um, that helps, but really, um, he's kind of building an argument, much like Hebrews is very similar to Romans. If you just jump in and read, read one verse and try and extract meaning from it, you're going to have a really hard time. Um, but if you, if you sit down and you read it and you try to take in the whole chapter, the whole book, you'll start to really understand the picture better. Um, so if you, I guess, any other questions from the section we read? If not, we'll kind of move on. Well, you know, the Pharisees, they, um, you're talking about works. The Pharisees thought it was works when Jesus uh, forgave sins. Yes. You know. That is, that's the, um, if we remember Sunday, that is the story right in all three Gospels. It's immediately after the story about the disciples plucking the grain is him healing the withered hand. And, he, and that's where he gives them the example, you know, which one of you, if his sheep was lost would not go save it. Mm-hmm. And he kind of... He used this illustration, and some have used this illustration to say that there's like some laws that are more important than other laws, but really he's using this illustration to kind of get you to understand that like all of the laws are equally as important, and that is not really that important compared to holiness and godliness. That it's much more about the character of a person than it ever is a checklist. Um... You know, well, let's go to, I have that passage written down too. Let's go to Mark, the end of Mark chapter 2, um, and we'll actually start, I'm pretty sure it's the beginning of Mark 3 is where we'll actually start with that story that Claude I had just referenced, because I had that written down. So we'll go there now. Yeah, Mark chapter 3, and I'll read uh, just this little story that we've been talking around um, from Mark chapter 3, just starting at the top of the chapter. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? So right off the bat, he's kind of presenting a dichotomy of, If I heal this man, he could live. If I don't heal him, I'm also kind of making a choice, and that is to let him he, he says to kill, but he also said to let him die. Um, I don't know how, if this, what kind of, this is gangrene, if this is a withered hand that would eventually kill him. But he's kind of painting the picture, he's kind of setting them up for something. He's going to himself hit out of the park, essentially saying that, like, if I, if I ignore somebody, that's just as much making a choice to do harm to that person if I'm choosing not to help them. Does it, the Pharisees would want to say that, like, Oh, well, we're passively letting people suffer, but we're not doing work. And he would say, no, that's actually doing something too. You're choosing to not help people, which means you're choosing to kind of let them suffer. Um, so, so he's kind of trying to take away this out that they would have of remaining passive 
if that makes sense. Um, so he says, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I think it's, um, it's interesting. So this, this is, uh, I think just another example of what I would say where he, again, it's, it's never going to go back to being about a checklist or following a set of rules, but it's about the character of a person. Um, and we could also use this as sort of proof text for what the Hebrews writer talks about later on. This, this jives. It would be confusing if the Hebrews writer said, we don't need to rest anymore, but Jesus said, still honor the Sabbath. So he's kind of laying the groundwork here, even though technically they're still kind of under the old law until Jesus dies, right? Um, he's laying the groundwork to say, hey, you guys already kind of don't understand the Sabbath. So later on when someone tells you don't keep the Sabbath, don't freak out because you've kind of already got it wrong. <laughs> Um, and he does this with a lot of different stuff. I mean, he does this with anger and murder. He does this with lust and adultery, right? He does this with a lot of things. He says, he, he kind of sets it up for things to change. And what he's really telling them is not that, uh, you know, we're, we're not stepping from the 2020 tax code into 21 tax code. and They're two totally different things. He's kind of saying, the way you're doing it is actually misunderstanding what my father said already, if that makes sense. Um, Any questions on specifically the Sabbath, either about Mark or Hebrews or um, another one I had written down that we didn't read was what we ended up talking about Sunday, which I did not expect when I first prepared this lesson last week. But, uh, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, any questions on just New Testament scripture on Sabbath in general? When you're talking about, is it lawful? do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil. You know, we have a lot of people that work on Sundays. True. And Probably. They have to work. Yeah. I mean, you know, what would you do without doctors and nurses? Right. Even going down to the janitors, because they got to be there to pick up the clothing, you know, uh, the people that wash clothes, you know. Yeah. Like because they got to uh, sanitize everything. And uh, there's a lot of people that's got to work on Sunday. And uh, I just don't believe there's nothing wrong with that. But if, but if I say, now, boy, I want to work Sunday now. I make <laughs> that money, extra money. Right. I believe that's where it comes in to be yeah. wrong. Yeah. You know. But if you got a, in a position where you have to work, you know, somebody's got to do it. You can't, you can't just sit there and say, well, there's plenty of sinners in this old world. Let them work, you know? <laughs> yeah, we'd always, we'd always joke if we saw, you know, a crowd at a restaurant or something early Sunday morning, like a brunch place. We'd be like, look at all the sinners having breakfast, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but no, you're right. There, there are people who have to work Sundays. Um, I think it's actually in Hebrews. It's not the section we were looking at, but I think it's in Hebrews where it talks about forsaking the fellowship, as some have done. Um, if y'all haven't figured out, I'm really bad at chapter, book, and verse. So if someone knows one of these that I'm trying to, pull off my cuff and you know it and I'm wrong, just tell me. <laughs> I won't be embarrassed. I know I'm not very good at chapter, book, and verse sometimes. Um, but no, I, I would agree with that. I think it's... Uh, it, 
fellowship is important. Um, a lot of people would say, you know, we, we do what we do because it said they met on the first day of the week, right? And if we look at Acts, a lot of their stuff was the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. Um, when that transition happened from the seventh day to the first day, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not sure if that was to be distinct from the Jews. But in, I do know very well that in both cases, both in the early Christian New Testament church and in the later Jewish era, uh, there were people in the synagogue and the temple all the time, daily. In the same way that we can go through Acts and find plenty of evidence of the disciples and the early apostles being in the, in the um, meeting, fellowshipping, often still in the synagogues, uh, daily, you know. Um, I think if you if you look at their example, really their example was they met daily for different stuff, um, or on a regular basis, often uh, communion and worship. You could probably you could make an argument for that should only be done on the first day of the week. But I, I can't even really say only. That's what I'm getting at. Does that make sense? They did it on the first day of the week, but they also did other days of the week. Because um, where I'm going with this is I know there's a lot of churches nowadays that offer you know Sunday, Saturday, and Friday services. Or they offer Sunday and some other Friday night or Saturday night. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. And I would just say that feels like one of those things. And if we read Scripture and we say we don't, we, we don't have a certain day of the week we keep holy – well, then you can't turn around and say, also, it's heathenish to offer services outside of Sunday. To me, it's kind of like one of those things where we say the church isn't the building, it's the people, but then we treat the church building differently. You know, you can't have that. That's one of those things that doesn't make sense both ways to me. Um, so there are certain things we do by example because the scripture says on the first day of the week, and in that one sentence it says on the first day of the week they did this. But if you read other scriptures, there's stuff they did all throughout the week, all the time. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I know that has the potential to open up a can of worms in and of itself, but, um, yeah. I remember uh, them having it on news that uh, the Catholic nuns used to meet and they would uh, pray. And they have been praying, and it's never been broken. They prayed. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Hmm. They would get together. They would just going all the time about praying. And uh, as far as just getting together as women and praying, I don't think nothing wrong with it. Yeah. This congregation here, women wants to get together every, every night and pray for two or three hours. I don't think nothing wrong with it. Or anybody. And that, yeah. that's kind of what I was getting that, you know, yes, there are certain things, especially when we talk about giving the Lord's Supper, that were instituted on the first day of the week. But if we just talk about services, um, there's scriptural precedent for services whenever it is good for you to have services. Um, that's, like I said, that's really all I was getting at with that one. Um, so, I wanted to talk about the Ten Commandments and specifically the Sabbath. Uh, for us to kind of, like I said, I, I want that to kind of lay the groundwork when we talk about the old law as a whole. Um, in many ways, the new law did not so much replace the old law as in that Jesus' death made us reinterpret 
kind of those same standards we've always been held by. Um, some, something I hear a lot, and I think this is really, really, just a really good way of putting it. God has always given grace, expected faith, and demanded obedience. Um, I've heard that. I can't remember who originally said that. But God has always given grace. If you look at the Old Testament, he's given grace at times when he, you know, when he, he did not necessarily pour his wrath out on people who sinned when he, didn't, uh, when he just decided not to. He gives grace under the new law. He's always expected faith. Like he's never, not only has he commanded faith, but he is, as a part of uh, just being in a covenant with God, he has always expected faith. And he's always demanded obedience. He's always demanded, you know, under the old law, under the new law. When someone disobeyed him under the old law, there was often punishment for that, but there was also sometimes grace. We look all through Joshua and Judges. There's the cycles of different uh, people obeying God or not obeying God. And the same is true today. We, we would say today sometimes people sin. It caused havoc in their life, right? And other times we look around and we see people sin and we're like, why is their life great? And that's where you know, books like Revelation come in. <laughs> when you look around and see the wicked prosper and the, the, those who are righteous suffering, you know, know that God is in control of um, So I, I wanted us to kind of, like I said, I would, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, all of these were really just small parts of the whole. Because if you look at Jesus' teaching on the old law in general, it's a lot of, like I said, it's, it's not a new... Total 2.0, a new structure or a new system that necessarily replaces. Uh, it's, it's not God changing his mind. That's probably a, a, the best way I can kind of, in short, put on saying. There are people out there who would kind of, and, and that sounds silly, but I think there's a lot of theological issues with that if we want to go down that path. There's a lot of people who would say, well, God changed his mind. Originally it was this way, and that Jesus was like a plan B, and now it's this way. Well, really, if you look at Jesus, if you look at Jesus as the Messiah of the Old Testament, he really showed them a new way of looking at the old law. Does that make sense? Did you heard the old law and took it as a, as a, as a system of checklists? He said, I'm telling you, don't just look at it as a system of, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount. Really, if you go and read the Sermon on the Mount, we read it today, and I think we get certain things from it because we don't know the Old Testament or the old law very well. But if you really, really try to look at it in a way that the Jews or anyone who has just had, again, who has just had this checklist of how to live your life and this idea of that if you do X, Y, and Z every day, this is how God will love you. If you look at how a person in that situation who's had that hammered into their head, how someone like that would receive the Sermon on the Mount and you read it again, I think it's really one of the best ways to understand the relationship between the old law and the new law. Because he just goes down the list. He talks about anger and murder. He talks about praying and fasting, he talks about oaths, he talks about, um, man, I, a lot of them. But he, but he really hits on a bunch of different aspects of it. And a lot of it is just that he's not telling them, hey, forget that law, I'm giving you a new law. He's saying the laws that have been in place from the beginning, you've kind of misunderstood. You have not held the right way. So that's why when we talked about this last week, I said sometimes the even the way we talk about it when we say the old law and the new law, sometimes that can be misleading. So. Yes.
Yes. Like if don't go read Leviticus and try to do that in your life today. It's not necessary. Because you read in the Old Testament it's talking about Jesus coming and fulfilling the law. Yes. So to fulfill the law means it's, it's no longer in, in service. It's, it's done. Yes. And that, that's, yeah, that's a very good thing to point out. Is that yes, we are no longer adherent to a lot of the, the old laws. But I guess what Jesus says a lot is that the person I am calling you to be today is still the same kind of person that you have been called to be from the beginning. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a different standard. At the end of the day, it's not really a different standard. True. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important thing to point out as well. Yes. No, and that's that's not even yeah, that's that's scriptural. That's very scriptural. Um so you, you mentioned something that was something I was gonna go, so I'll go ahead and jump on that as a segue. Let's go look at Ephesians two, and we're gonna read Ephesians two fourteen. Because there is scripture that tells us uh, there are ways that the old law was not complete, and there are specific flaws or uh, inadequacies that are pointed out, and we'll look at those in uh We'll talk about the ways that it was not complete, and then we'll uh, then we'll kind of finally answer the question. So, all that being said, you know, what does it mean for us now, right? What is, how does this change my life today, kind of thing? So, let's look at Ephesians two. Um, and if someone could read Ephesians two, uh, verse fourteen or fifteen. And he really goes on to say, talk about reconciliation. You know, we both have access to the one Father. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We're all fellow citizens and saints. Um, again, kind of like Hebrews, all of that. Like we, we could read all of Ephesians too, and it would be another really good way of us understanding the new law. Um, but he says, you know, there was it. It could not save everyone. There was a dividing wall. Um, he uses words like foreigners and aliens later on down. So it it couldn't save everybody. Is what Steve pointed out. Um, if we read Galatians 3 or Hebrews 10, we might go back to Hebrews 10 in a second. Um, it was not intended to last forever. Scripture talks about how the old law was not intended to last forever. It was not permanent. It was, it was by its nature to come until it was fulfilled by a Messiah. Um, this is, there's, there's a reason. We talked about this last week. If you remember, we talked about the division that we kind of divide the Old Testament into. The law, the wisdom, and the prophets. Well, all of those have help. The law tells you how to live, right? Wisdom is something that's not the law, but it's still helpful. One of the prophets, those are the part that talked about the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment, the eventual fulfillment, and the eventual doing away with the law. We can go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, 
find all these references that talk about how one, you know, what is now in part will be complete. What we do now is a shadow of what's to come. Um, there's a lot of that, right now we do this, but in the future we'll do this. There's a lot of that language in the old law itself, is what I'm saying. That's, that's another reason that this uh, description of sort of a, a dividing wall between the two, that Ephesians even says has been torn down, um, is really the way to view it. Because, uh, again, when, when he came, he, he did not rewrite history. You know, he fulfilled it. The law that they obeyed, that law itself talked about how it was temporary. It had an expiration date. It talked about how someone would come who would fulfill it. So, um, and I, I say that because, well, Judaism still exists today, right? So obviously not everybody who obeyed the law got the, got the message. Um, there's many who would say that when Jesus came, he, he rewrote the law. He, he kind of invented new things, and he came up with a new theology and a new set of rules and just tried to completely ignore it. Well, no, if you, if you, he did the things the Old Testament said he would do. He fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled prophecy that was a part of that law. Um, so the old, you know, the old Testament or the old law, un, which is we call the Old Testament, it, it could not fully take away sin. It could not last forever. It could not save everyone. So, um, if the old law was complete, and it is made is fulfilled under Jesus why do we have it as a part of our Bible and why do we study it I mean Paul Paul says it was schoolmaster we talked about that last week but someone you know what what practical application could that have to our lives today Have we ever read the Old Testament and learned something? <laughs> what is something we've learned? For the, what, is, what are things we can learn from this? I mean, we, if I, I talked about this last week again, but if I roll through my kind of Rolodex of VBS stories, a lot of them came from the Old Testament. So obviously they're useful. We teach them to kids, right? So, so what, why? Why do we teach them to kids? The lessons of them still apply. <laughs> They're in the old law. We still, they're still in the New Testament where we should abide by the same rules. Yeah. We don't have them laid out like the Ten Commandments, but we, it's all there. Yeah. Right. I, did any? This is I can think probably of at least two people. Did anyone learn to drive with a Mapsco? Anyone ever owned a Mapsco? It was a book that had maps in it. Or everyone learned? I guess did anyone have a map when they learned to drive? Probably most of the people in here, right? You learn to drive. So I just say that because when I, when I first got my license, I did not have a smartphone. I did not have a GPS in my car. And I had to drive to Dallas on a regular basis. And it was very confusing. <laughs> it was a very big city. And it was very confusing when you're 16. So I, my parents had a Mapsco. And a Mapsco was just a book like this thick that if you flipped it through, you could find these different maps. And like they connected to each other on different pages. It was kind of like an atlas, I guess, but smaller scale. Okay. If we, if we talk about these things, how the old laws temporary, it's time sensitive, it couldn't help everybody, and it's not complete. Well, the Mapsco was not perfect. It was not complete. It was absolutely temporary because they would release 27, you know, 2007, 2006. Pretty sure I learned to drive with like a 2003 Mapsco. 
My dad's truck had like a 96 maps go, which is horribly inaccurate, by the way, in a growing area of Dallas. But I say all that to say that if you're in the middle of nowhere and you have nothing, a map is still better than nothing. <laughs> if you don't have cell phone signal, if you don't have a GPS, if you don't have a Garmin or a TomTom, -tom, I can't remember what those things were called, but it's still better than nothing. It's still helpful. It's still useful. Do what? Someone said rather half the map. <laughs> right. Yeah. A trucker's atlas. That's interesting. Yeah. So if there are some areas that we would say, well, the roads have changed, or the this has been just either that road's gone, or now a new one's built. But by and large, if I'm using it just to get around generally, it's still helpful. If I was to only obey the Ten Commandments, right? Let's, let's take that out. Let's maybe not deal with the animal slaughtering and things like that. But like, if I was just to obey the Ten Commandments, I would not be a Christian, right? Because I would miss everything about baptism and about grace and all that. But I would be doing a lot of the things that Christians are called to do, right? Like if I'm just looking at someone's life. So it's still helpful, especially if you have nothing. But... Same thing with like GPS and old maps. Something that is not temporary, something that is actually complete, something that is more perfect, or just perfect really, uh, is better. Of course it's better. Um, but it's still helpful. Um, I'm not 100% sure if we answered the does it apply, so I just want to throw out some scriptures um, that we could look at. You know, Colossians 2.14 says we are, the old law was blotted out. Galatians 3.13 says we're freed from the old law. Romans 7, uh, really like all of Romans 7, talks about being dead to the law and alive in Christ. Um, Romans 7, Romans 8. And then Hebrews 8.13 actually says the old law decays and grows old um, in light of Christ. Um, But it, it is still helpful. Um, another kind of way that I've, just another analogy or whatever, I've kind of put it is for, uh, imagine like a, not imagine because it happens, but like a system of laws like a tax code. Um, if I file my taxes in 2021, I have to file my taxes according to the 2021 tax code, right? If I die today, I will be judged by the covenant that I am under today. Whether or not my soul will be in heaven or hell will be under the covenant that I am in today, right? There were some people in the past that were judged by a different standard. Like Steve mentioned earlier, different, the same standard would be different rules for getting to that same standard. Um, if I am only filing my taxes for this year and I am not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, all I really need to care about is the 2021 tax code. If I wanted to be a Christian, there are probably parts of the New Testament that would confuse me if I didn't have the old law. But if I, if I didn't have the Old Testament at all in my Bible, and I just have one of those little pocketbooks that's the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs, um, you can become a Christian if you just had the New Testament. I would, I would be able to, I could say that pretty confidently. You would become a Christian if you just had the New Testament. There's a lot of chunks that would confuse you when they talk about the old law, when they reference old scripture. You'd be very confused, I think, personally. Um, but you could become a Christian 
In the same way that if, if I'm filing my taxes this year, I don't really need to know what the taxes code was in 1993. Um, so I'm judged by 2021 standards. But let's say I'm an accountant. I want to be a lawyer. I want to own a business, run a business. It would still be very, even if I'm just working in the current tax code, it's still helpful for me to know the past years. If someone comes to me with questions, if someone comes to me for help of their life from their own past, it's helpful for me to be able to relate that to them. Um, and, I, and I think in kind of this weird analogy, Christians are kind of called to be more not, we're called to be sort of lawyers, right? We're called to, def- we're called to defend the word of God. We're called to know the whole word of God. Well, if I, in order to defend and know the, old, the New Testament, I've really got to have the Old Testament. Um, like I said, you could be saved if you just had one of those little, they're not Gideon Bibles because other things in hotel rooms, but those little just pocket Bibles. You could be saved if you just had the New Testament. I, at least I, I believe you could. Um, but if you wanted to really fulfill kind of the Christian level of understanding that God calls us to have of his word, to be ready for to give an answer, as First Peter says, and to defend the faith, as James says, um, you really need the Old Testament. I don't think, if you took the New Testament and you cut out all of the parts of it that reference the Old Testament, I'm not sure you could read it and then be saved. Just because you wouldn't know. And I'm not, again, not trying to make a theological statement there. I'm just saying... You would cut out so much. Like if you went through and you cut out all of the New Testament that even referenced the Old Testament, you would cut out so much that then I think you would start to lose the ability to save somebody with God's word because you would just be missing such a huge part of it. So, I don't know. Well, and I guess that's probably where I would say, you know, Lord willing, we probably save somebody with like two Bible verses, right? Yeah. Everything you need to be saved. No, I I agree, but I'm saying there's a even Jesus so often referenced the Old Testament. Yeah. You know what? You're probably right. He had to. Because he was dealing with people in the Old Testament. Right. Right. I mean, he had he was dealing with the old law his whole life. So he had to show you know, the fulfillments and all as he goes, because he's he's trying to teach people that's been taught something all their life, a new way of life. Right. And, you know, but I think we could do without the Old Testament and still be saved. Yeah, and you're probably right. I think I'd probably lose that argument of how, how little of the, that's kind of a weird... It's, it's abolished. Yeah. It's complete. We don't need it. That's true. That's true. And that, I guess that puts me in a weird position. I'm, I'm not sure how comfortable I am saying how little of the Bible could you share with someone and save them, right? That's probably the opposite of what we should be doing. But well, when you talk about Christianity and all, about obedience and having purpose. True. And the lessons that we learn from the Old Testament cover both those topics. Yes. Yeah. And I know the New Testament I agree. I think you could be saved by the New Testament. Yeah. Because 
Yeah. Well, I think, I think we benefit from, kind of like how Steve pointed out, I, th I think we kind of ignore the Old Testament because we feel like we don't need it. But I think we have the benefit of saying that because I'd, I'd be willing to bet um, most of us growing up always from a very young age were taught that faith in God and faith in the Bible as God's word. Right? I, I'm willing to, not every, maybe not everybody, but probably most of us. And truthfully, most of America up until like probably 25, 30 years ago, you could probably say, even if they didn't necessarily believe and they weren't necessarily obedient, most Americans for a very long chunk of time were taught faith in God. And there was just an assumption already in our heads that this is the word of God. So whenever you evangelize with somebody, all you had to really do is show them God's word and say, well, this is what he's saying. Like, and usually they're like, well, that's not what someone's told me my whole life. I didn't know that, <laughs> right? <laughs> you start showing them things in their own Bible. They're like, well, I didn't, I didn't know he said that. And that's really all you had to do to evangelize. Well, nowadays, when we go to somebody, now I've got to deal with sometimes they don't even believe God exists. And then if they don't believe God exists, rarely would they say this is God's word. So then I start talking about Christian evidences, right? We start, so why should I believe in God? And you know what I go to the most often with those people? is often the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that absolutely rings true today. Um, and, and so I think we've, we've kind of lived in this period of sort of a Christian society for so long that we almost no longer saw value in the Old Testament because, at least when I think of my own life, I've never in my life, I have strayed from what God has asked me to do in my life, but I've never really not had the assumption that God exists and the Bible is his word. Because it was just kind of baked into me from such a very young age and everyone around me, right? We, we live in, even though I, would, I think the number is just below 50% of people go to church or say they go to church, what the number actually is, who knows, right? But people who say they go to church did below 50% for the first time a few weeks ago in some big poll. So now we're less than the majority, but for a, a huge portion of American history, that was the majority of people. They would at least identify in some way as Christian, so we didn't, we didn't need that old law. But that's all they had, as you pointed out. That's what, that's what really taught them that God exists. That's what taught them, as Todd pointed out, faith and obedience. And really, from my own kind of like having to sort of go back and study, because I didn't do it very much when I was younger, um, I think if we can kind of see Jesus the way the early church saw Jesus and really know the stories and know the prophecies and understand what the law was and understand what the prophecies were, it will really cause us to see who Jesus is in a new light. Because again, along with God and you know God's word, I'm, I, most of us have probably never really questioned the existence of Jesus. So, yep, Jesus, son, you know, we, from just such a young age, we're like, yep, Jesus is the Son of God. It's in the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. Of course. Right? We never really questioned those things. But if you're sharing with someone who does question those things, well, then you need to go back and say, well, like, well, who's Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. Why is he the Son of God? Does he say that? Kind of. 
Well, if you were saying there was somebody <clears throat> of the Jewish faith, or maybe back when Jesus was teaching, mm-hmm. you needed the Old Testament to go back and prove to them, like when Abraham was promised, you know, out of his loins would be a savior. Mm-hmm. And you can always, you can go back to, what is it, where it says that the Savior be born of a virgin. Mm-hmm. All of this, see, back then, he needed the Old Testament to prove that he was the real thing. He was, he'd been prophesied the whole way. So he had to prove to them that, you know, we got a new law, here it is, and here's why we got it. Right. But today, we don't have to prove the new law because most people don't know nothing but the new law. Right. You don't have people living in the Old Testament. No, but you do have a lot of people who might doubt, just like I said, I don't know if, how often y'all have, y'all have studied with someone who just doesn't even accept the Bible, but even atheistic people cannot deny that the first five books of our Bible are some of the oldest writings known to man. Like they, they date back, it, I mean, I was not alive when this happened, I don't think, but for those of who you were, you probably remember the Dead Sea Scrolls being a big, big deal. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the oldest copies we had of the Old Testament were like about 3,000 years old. Like we thought they were about 3,000 years old. Because it had been copied and copied and copied so many times that some of the earliest ones were lost, so we only had later ones. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls pushed that date back another 1,000 years. And when they took those writings that were 1,000 years older than the current writings, and it was chunks of Isaiah and chunks of the Psalms, and they lined them up with the ones we had at the time, they were within a 99.9% accuracy, which even the most atheistic of historians say is a very remarkable find. So when you start studying with someone who doesn't believe those same things we believe with, you'll find yourself going to the Old a lot, a lot. Um, obviously, I'm out of time, so I'll stop. But <laughs> um, I don't really ask this before services. Is there any prayer requests? Or is, there any, is there any other? Uh, yeah, I guess prayer requests. I'll start with that one. Steve, I've talked about this upcoming Sunday, but is there anything else going on? Any other announcements? Housekeeping issues? Yes. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, because...